We're looking at the subject today of hurting fathers. You say, well, that's not a very nice subject to bring on Father's Day. Well, I hope to be encouraging as well as we talk about hurting fathers. And we want to talk firstly, if you'll look at, look at your bulletin outline, uh, Solomon, the wise man. We draw a lot from Solomon because of the Proverbs, but also because of the fact that God gave him such tremendous insight. The book of Ecclesiastes, when we're looking at here, Ecclesiastes 2, the book of Ecclesiastes is a journal written by Solomon in which he posts the various adventures that he experienced in his quest to find meaning in life and living. Because he was king over a vast empire and wealthy beyond imagination, there was little to hinder Solomon in his research. For example, to answer his questions required wisdom and know-how. But you know, Solomon had these things. He had wisdom and know-how. The scripture says God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Wow. Quite a statement. Solomon's wisdom was greater. I'm still reading. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. Whoa. He was wiser than any other man. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. So from the mighty cedars to weeds, Solomon was into botany. He also, I'm still reading scripture, he also taught about animals, so he was into zoology, and birds, arithnology, reptiles and fish, ichthyology, from the Greek word for fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. 1 Kings 4, 29 through 34. Say, well, what's your point? My point is, he did not simply study these disciplines, but he lectured on them. We would say in our day, this man has multiple PhDs. There's not a subject that he doesn't have wisdom about. Now that's first thing. But secondly, it takes money. Lots of money to carry on the investigative research upon which Solomon embarked. Think about it. I mean, the university studies in the various disciplines in our day often involve federal or private foundation funding that numbers into the millions and millions of dollars. That's in our day. But again, Solomon had money to burn. We read, God said to Solomon, since this is your heart's desire, and you have not asked for wealth or riches or honor, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king. Therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given to you, and I will also give you wealth, 
riches, honor, such as no king who was before you ever had, and none after you will ever have. Wow, what a sweeping promise. Think about that. You're going to be richer than any other, than any king to date, and any king that comes after you. When you're dead and long gone, they're going to be thinking about your wealth and how powerful your kingdom was. Let me ask the question. By the way, that's from 2 Chronicles 1, verse 11 and 12. Let me ask the question. How rich is rich? How rich is rich? Let me answer from the Bible. All King Solomon's goblets were gold. All the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon, that's his summer home, were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram, that was his friend. Once every three years, the fleet returned carrying gold, silver, ivory, apes, baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. 1 Kings 10, verse 21 and following. How rich is rich? <laughs> Nobody today comes close. So think about this. Solomon had both the wisdom and the wherewithal in terms of financial resources to probe, to investigate, to analyze, and to come to a reasonable conclusion on whatever subject matter suited his fancy. He was a one-man, lusciously funded research center. And his research is what Ecclesiastes is about. And that's the second point. The book of Ecclesiastes is the result of his research and conclusions. It's like, um, it's like his doctoral thesis in print for all to read and to learn from. But unlike most doctoral writings, his thesis covers multiple disciplines, not just one. He's at the end of his life. He's reviewing for us what his money permitted him to investigate and what his wisdom permitted him to analyze accurately and come to biblical conclusions. And there is no other book in all of literature that can boast this kind of scope and thoroughness. Now, Ecclesiastes is just giving his conclusions. It is not giving all of his, the research details. If you've ever read any kind of uh, research 
uh, thesis, it's boring. You know, if we did this, we did that, we sent out this team, and they did that. So, so he, that's not here. What he's doing is giving you the conclusions of the various endeavors in research that he explored. And there is also this added dimension that cannot be ignored, and that is that Solomon's analysis of life is God-given. Let me read it for you. 1 Kings 4, verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon himself would be the first to acknowledge this. In one of his Proverbs he says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come Knowledge and understanding, Proverbs 2, verse 6. Daniel confessed a similar truth when, under threat of the king, he was given the ultimatum to interpret the king's dream or die. And here's what he says. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and disposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what was asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Daniel 2, 20 through 23. Now, I love this phrase that he gives here. He says of God, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Now, it's, it's not stated that he, that he just does that for believers. If you know somebody that's pretty wise and pretty discerning among unbelievers... They have that as a result of the gift of God. Particular skills in mathematics, science, all of those things that uh, baffle us sometimes. It's not an occasion to pat man on the back and say, well, you know, you're pretty smart. <laughs> it's an occasion to praise God, but men do not. But Daniel did. Now what this means on a practical level is that if something is truly wise, it supports rather than distracts from the word of God. Again, Psalm 119, verse 160. All your words are true, says the psalmist. All your righteous laws are eternal. You can trust God's word to be true. Daniel was not wise in his own right. Solomon was not wise in his own right. No, these men were wise because they were filled with the wisdom of God that he alone gives. No wonder we read, the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear, listen, the wisdom God had put in his heart. 1 Kings 10 verse 24. That's why he was sought out. This divine wisdom, since it is connected with God Almighty, the God who cannot and does not lie must also paint life's portraits as it truly is in a sinful world. There can be no larger than life expose, 
No touch-ups to hide blemishes that are obvious to all. And this is why Solomon appears to be cynical and harsh at times in his analysis in Ecclesiastes. He must tell it like it is. And honest people want the truth, even if the truth hurts at times. Solomon lets us see the truth through the eyes of a man that's full of the wisdom of God. And for that, we should be eternally grateful. Now, how this applies to fathers becomes now evident. And that's the second point in your outline. We're going to look at some windows into Solomon's research. Now, I had to be very selective here. I, a whole book could be written about the windows of the, of the book of Ecclesiastes and what he looks into, the various aspects of life. But I had to be selective because I'm dealing with fathers today. So I'm dealing with those things that I think are in a father's heart. Number one, the first window Solomon allows us to look through is this. It is tough being the breadwinner of the household. That's the first window. It is tough to be the breadwinner of the household. If ever there were a truth drummed into male children in a home, it is the truth. That someday you will get married, someday you will have children of your own, and thus a family for which you will be responsible to support. Even with all the chatter of the feminist movement about working women and career women and stay-at-home dads, the world recognizes our culture and generally the world that the husband and dad is held responsible to acquire gainful employment so that he can support his wife and kids. Even in divorce settlements, what do we hear about? Fathers are assigned alimony and child support. What's that? Take care of wife, take care of kids, even though you're getting a divorce. And they have a name for those guys that don't do that. They're called deadbeat dads. They skip out on caring for their families. And it is a criminal offense. This is all part of our society. But what about responsible dads? What does Solomon have to say about work in general? And how might his analysis contribute to grief? for working husbands and fathers. Look at our text, verse 17 and following. Solomon says, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and my skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Verses 17 through 19. The first phrase here is quite revealing. He says, I hated life because the work that is done was grievous. Life and work, what? They go together. 
But for this working father, there is a grief because the future of his family is uncertain. Well, what is uncertain? He says, I hated all the things I had toiled for because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort. I want you to think about that. With our economy in the dumper, there is a lot of talk among families, among fathers, about how well or how poorly their families will do in the future with the national debt at $16 trillion. It's just mind-boggling. One trillion is $500 billion. $100 billion. Fathers see this huge debt as something that will control their legacy and take it right out of the hands of their children, in effect depleting their inheritance and financial security for which he has worked and saved and toiled a lifetime. Some of you are right there right now. You're right in that category. As God's people, we are told not to worry. But Solomon in his research came to this position, verse 20. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom and knowledge and skill. And then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. And even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 20 through 23. Some might ask, well... <laughs> What could Solomon possibly know about work and grief? It seems like an oxymoron to us. Look at verse 4 and following. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had other slaves who were born in my house. Think about this. Well, see, he had slaves. He just snapped his fingers, and they did the work for him. No, no, think about this. He's talking like a corporate CEO. These servants had to be housed. They had to be fed. He goes on. I also own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of a man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. He didn't lose his mind. He kept 
control of his faculties, you see. My wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desire. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight. Now listen, in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. I know some have the attitude that unless you're out there with a shovel digging dirt and heaving it and doing something manual that makes you sweat, then then you don't know what work is about. If you sit behind a desk and work on a computer, you're not working. If you're administrating, you're not working. It's got to be, you know, bowling bumpers on cars and all that. Well, let me tell you, there's a labor, there's work when you're doing all of these kinds of building projects. He had to hop in his chariot and get out there and inspect what the guys were doing and call the ones that were doing shoddy work to task and tear that out and redo that and all of those various things. Solomon was a doer. He was not a talker. His wisdom was not absorbed in philosophical contemplations. And he wasn't simply living off the interest of his vast sums of money in the bank. No. He was always planning, thinking how to care for his 1,000 wives and children that went with that. And to utilize his wealth in helpful projects that would benefit his estate and his kingdom. He was the Donald Trump of the ancient East. And what's his conclusion? Verse 11. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Uh, did, I, did I read that right? <laughs> nothing was gained? Everything was meaningless? How's that? Because there was no certainty that these success stories would ever accrue to his family. His house steward might be a thief and rob his family of their inheritance. Ah, that wouldn't happen. It happened in Saul's kingdom. Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, robbed the inheritance of Mephibosheth, Saul's son. Don't say it can't happen because you're a king. It did happen. Or his son might become a rogue who squanders the family inheritance on wine, women, and songs. Say, oh, that wouldn't happen. It happened with Esau. In our day, the investment portfolio might come up tilt, as it has for so many whose life savings were wiped out through crooked investment firms and banks or volatile stock markets up and down. Do we not re for, uh, remember Lehman Brothers? Six trillion dollars of your money, America's money, the consumer's money, the investor's money, not the big shots, the little guys. Six trillion dollars. Lost. Oh well. Sorry. Yeah. These people worked all their life to save for the future of their kids and family. Whew. 
You can see that for conscientious fathers, just being the breadwinner of the family is enough in these hard economic downturns to bring grief and pain. What's the solution? Well, Solomon gives it. Here it is. He says, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, okay, knowledge, yes, number three, happiness. Wisdom, knowledge, happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Our text, verse 24 through 26. Ah, there it is. There it is. Did you see it? Happiness. Satisfaction in one's work is found in the believer whose eye is on God, not the work itself. Paul put it this way, slaves, we would think employees, okay? Slaves, obey your earthly masters, your employers in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Oh, how will the Lord get in there? Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Solomon said that to the man who pleases the Lord, God gives happiness and Paul says that our work must be viewed first and foremost as serving the Lord. And that said, God will, re, will, that man will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Now, it's not necessarily going to be paid out in like coinage. We need to keep that in mind as Christians. Oh, you know. The Health, Wealth, and Prosperity group that's preaching on television teaches a different gospel that's no gospel. God hasn't promised you riches here on this earth, but he's promised you a reward that no one can touch and take away. And this explains the rest of Solomon's conclusions. He says, but to the sinner, he, God, gives the task of gathering and storing wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. So that man whose fortune is lost to another is the sinner, not the believer, whose whole life is filled with worry and greed. The sinner's life. You know, he's always worrying about his money. Jesus tells us as believers, do not worry, saying, Oh, oh, what shall I eat? Oh, oh, what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagan runs after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. 
It wasn't that true with Solomon. He wanted to be wise in the things of God. And God says, hmm, no king's ever asked for that. Since you asked for that, I'm going to give you riches on top. Jesus continues, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Matthew 6, 31 through 34. Stop worrying like a pagan. Confidently trust as one of God's children. This is our great, great hope. I've heard this asked so many times, you know, How's your portfolio doing? <laughs> People ask, ah, so how's your portfolio doing? Well, no ship has come into my port yet. <laughs> now worry about amassing things in this life. Striving for the kingdom. Where no thief or robber can come in and snatch those treasures away. So the first window he allows us to look into is this window of being the breadwinner in the family. The grief and pain that comes with that. But then the solution, which is to work with God in view. To enjoy your work and not be so concerned about your portfolio. But be concerned whether or not you're doing a job that pleases God. Secondly, a second window. Fathers hurt because their families live in a dangerous surround. He says again, this is in chapter 4, the first three verses. Again I looked and I saw, see how he's doing? Again is another window. So if you follow kind of through the book like that. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. And they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. And they have no comforter. And I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3. Now here Solomon says something that is very apropos for our day. He's talking about oppressors who seem to have free reign over the innocent and the defenseless. Just Thursday of this past week, it was reported on the news that Syrian soldiers are going through Syria, killing their own civilians, get this now, for no other reason than that they are male in gender. Think about that. So this, this is fathers, right? We're right down to where we're talking about this. So when they went into a town, they would round up the men, the fathers, the brothers, and so on, and they would murder them. And thousands of people have died in Syria this way. It is reminiscent of Pharaoh's dictum to the Hebrew midwives. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him! And if it's a girl, let him live. Exodus 1, verse 16. Doesn't that sound like the same thing? 
The rationale for such infanticide is that boy babies grow up to become soldiers. Leaving such to live meant Egypt would be promoting an enemy army within. Same with the Syrian male population. Already old enough to bear arms. Kill them off. You kill off any potential opposition to the dictator Assad. And the world stands by and says, well, I don't know what we can do about that. I, I, I just don't know. Protection of our families from harm is as much a concern for fathers as bringing home the bacon. The senseless acts of violence against our citizenry. The random acts of violence. The lack of any connective motive between victim and oppressor. The lack of compassion for women and children in these crimes. They bring a lot of grief to conscientious fathers. We take protection, we take preservation seriously, maybe even obsessing and becoming paranoid about the dangers that might be lurking in the dark. Jared had an excellent lesson on that this morning in the adult class. What's the solution to that? Solomon says, and this is in his Proverbs. Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked man rolling over a helpless people. But he who hates ill-gotten gain will enjoy a long life. He whose walk is blameless is kept safe. But he whose ways are perverse will suddenly fall. Proverbs 28, verse 15 through 18. Or again, what the wicked dreads will overtake him. What the righteous desire will be granted. When the storm is swept by, the wicked are gone. But the righteous stand firm forever. Proverbs 10, verse 24 and 25. Also written by Solomon. Solomon's father, David, phrased it this way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Psalm 23, verse 4 and 5. And Jesus, David's son and David's Lord, prayed this for you and yours. I will remain in the world no longer, Father, but they, as his disciples, are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, that's Judas, so that the scripture will be fulfilled. John 17, verse 11 and 12. Do you ever think that Christ's prayers reached all the way through the centuries and came to your doorstep? I pray for them that will believe in me. I pray that you'll protect them. Now this does not mean that we do not take reasonable precautions how we conduct ourselves 
in a hostile world. We do not walk the streets of northern Flint at night. We do not take the back road home when returning from shopping in the malls. We install motion lights over the drive. We secure locks on our doors. But we do not become prisoners in our own house and hostages in our own country. We do what is reasonable, what is efficient, what is within our power, but we do not become paranoid about all that could happen, believing that it will happen if we fathers are not just right there, present all the time. The psalmist put it this way. Listen to this. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long. And we will praise your name forever. Psalm 44, verses 6 through 8. The boy, David, answered the taunt of Goliath of Gath, the giant. And here's what he said to him. The boy, David. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you Philistines into our hands. 1 Samuel 17, verse 47. The answer, fathers, yes, we take reasonable precautions to protect our family, but in the final analysis, we commit our family members into your good keeping, knowing that we are not omnipresent like you. We're not omnipresent like God. We can't be everywhere. And we trust that the Lord will protect his people. The third window we're looking at this morning is that fathers hurt when contemplating that their own children may deny God. I think that's a great grief. This was part of the anguish which tore at David's heart in the death of his rebellious son Absalom, which we studied a week or so ago. We read, the king was shaken. He got the news. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. He's going up to the gatehouse to weep, but he weeps as he goes. And all of Israel, all of Jerusalem at least, Here's the king wailing for his lost son. Think about this. Now think about this. Absalom had attempted a coup against David, his father. He wanted to be king and he didn't care how he became king. Secondly, he had fornicated with David's concubines to insult David and show his spite towards his father. He did it on the palace roof where everybody knew about it. And thirdly, he tried to kill him. 
He tried to kill him. David said to his men, you know, we got to get out of Jerusalem. Absalom's on his way, and if we don't get out before he gets here, all of us are going to perish. David knew all these things about his son, yet with all of that animosity in Absalom, David agrees because Absalom is a lost son. Men are generally not as demonstrative as women, but it does not mean that we have no feelings on these matters. Christian fathers in particular have the spiritual goal of seeing every one of their sons, every one of their daughters come to know God through Christ the Savior. But you know, dads, we must do more than want it. We must do more than desire it. How are people brought to a knowledge of God as Savior? Where do most conversions occur? What are the means by which people repent and believe? Well, we could list such things as a gospel track. You leave that for the waitress. A Bible reading from a Gideon Bible in a hotel room. Yeah, there's stories about that. The witness of a friend. A video that you watched. An audio tape that was given to you. But you know, all these things combine pale in comparison to what Paul teaches as the theological principle of evangelism, which is this. I'm reading from Paul. Consequently, says Paul, faith comes. It comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ, Romans 10, verse 17. Yes, faith is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, verse 8. But this gift is not dispensed in a vacuum. It is given in and as a result of gospel preaching. Paul puts it this way. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Romans 10 verse 14. Or again, he says writing to the Corinthians. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. It isn't the preacher that is important. It isn't the church building that is important. It is the message of Christ crucified, risen, and coming again, blessed by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is found with His people when we collectively gather. And the Spirit blesses the preaching of God's Word without compromise. And I would say here that content is everything. Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that was preached to you, let that person be eternally condemned. Galatians 1 verse 8, and he repeats himself in case you didn't catch it the first time. There are other gospels out there that are no gospels at all. Find yourself a church where God's word is preached. Content is everything. And secondly, Holy Spirit presence is everything. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4 verse 12 and Ephesians 6 says that God's word is the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit. How can we as fathers be concerned that our children come to repentance and faith and then not have them exposed regularly, consistently to the preaching of the gospel whenever we can? By all means, pray for your children. But be doers of God's word and not hearers only. Place them within earshot of the sword of the Spirit that he might bring conviction and repentance and faith to the loss of your family. And, and if perchance your children already know the Lord, then you need to set the example of loving God yourself through your fidelity to gospel proclamation by which we are not only saved, but are sanctified. So you're here this morning and you're saved. Why do we come to church? That we might be sanctified. That we might be drawn closer to God and away from the world. That we might be made holy. For without holiness, the writer of Hebrews says, no one will see. The Lord. Therefore, God says, Be ye holy as I am holy. And that begins in this life here. And God's Word has that washing, cleansing effect. When you miss services, when you're hit and miss, mostly miss, look out. God will give me, might give you what you've sown. That indifference. You want your kids to be safe. Set the example. Have them here. Hearing God's word. Not just devotions at home. But the preaching of God's word. So we have some griefs as fathers. But there's light at the end of the tunnel. In every one of these, whether it's breadwinner, protection, concern about the salvation of our kids, God gives us the answer, what to do in regards to all of that. And you'll have noticed that all of this thinking is contrary to what the world thinks. The world's out there amassing its money to be a good breadwinner. <laughs> and they're neglecting their souls. They're neglecting the things that really constitute life. They're doing everything, bolts on the door, gun classes, protect their family. They do not realize that righteousness is what makes them strong and safe. God protects his people. Our Father, we pray for each one here. We pray for all the dads here, all the would-be dads that are going to be, and they grow up and get married, have a family of their own. In your book, and particularly Ecclesiastes, is an open revelation of the things that come our way in life and how we're to view those things as your people. 
thank you for Solomon. Yeah, he was a sinner just like all of us. The scripture says that his wives, his pagan wives, turned his heart away from the Lord. So they didn't serve the Lord with his whole heart as David, his father, had done. That was his sin. It was a grievous sin. But we are thankful for the wisdom that you gave him and for these investigations that he's made and for his answers, biblical answers, for the problems that face us as dads. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for the legacy that he left, not only for his own sons in the writing of the Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes, but the legacies left for us. Here we are, thousands of years later, we're reading his wisdom and learning from it. But well, we're reminded in the scriptures, O Lord Jesus, when you came upon the earth, you said to the congregations of your day, a greater than Solomon is here. And that was in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That one who, in, who imbibes all wisdom, knowledge, and excellence. Solomon went as far as he could go as a human being. But Jesus, God's son, is wise beyond belief. Scripture says that his wisdom is unfathomable. It can't be plummeted. You can't, you can't measure it. And this Christ, this Son of God, has shared his wisdom for us in the New Testament scriptures and has set an example for us as Christian fathers. Bless these truths to our heart. For any unsaved here today, bring them to know Christ the Savior, the one that's wiser than Solomon. For fathers here today, help us to live as God the Father would have us to live. Help us to stop making excuses for our shortcomings, for our failures, for our indolence, for our apathy. Help us to rise to the occasion and begin from this day forward to live for you. To set an example for our family that will carry them, carry them, into the future as they think about dad the things that he taught them the things that he did that demonstrated his faith was real save our kids lord for the glory of jesus amen